This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. All right, let's continue our efforts to get a little bit smarter about this virus and this vaccine. Uh, To do that, we can welcome Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU. Dr. Lusbader, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's just start with kind of, I guess what's on everybody's minds as we get wind through August is, reopening schools in New York City. The virus is still out there. We don't have a vaccine. What do you think the city should do with the schools? Thanks, Alex and Paul. A pleasure to be with you. Uh, It's definitely a challenge. You know, uh, Dr. Fauci and others have talked about regional differences. I think in New York and the Northeast in general, we're in somewhat of a more fortunate uh, space with decreased hospitalizations and dramatically decreased deaths from, you know, the peaks in uh, March and April. So I think generally that's good. I've got a number of patients who are both students uh, and teachers and professors, college professors, kids going back to college, and everyone is nervous. And no question, um, outside better than inside, but once people start getting into classrooms, there is a bit of a higher risk. The good news is generally uh, young people tend to do better with this uh, disease than older people. Uh, But that doesn't let off the hook the professors and teachers, many of whom are older, many of whom have risk factors, including weight issues, diabetes, blood pressure, you know, all of the risk factors that we know um, caused really higher mortality uh, during the peak. What many places are doing is testing, doing swabs, and we know that that's helpful, although there's both uh, a false positive and a false negative rate. So um, having a negative swab doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're free of uh, COVID, although it certainly is highly suggestive that the virus isn't there. And I think exactly as you say, it's going to have to be a step-by-step process and see as you go. Cohorting people, in other words, having the same group of people uh, together, uh, whether it's in the morning or in the afternoon or separate classrooms with a little bit of space between them will be helpful. And in that way, if someone in that smaller group gets ill, you can sort of isolate that group and not affect the entire school. That's sort of hopefully going to be the the strategy. And and in a way, that has to be the strategy, whether it's sports or colleges, too. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because here's what's confusing to me. It's like we might open museums, right? We may open gyms. We're not opening movie theaters, but we're opening schools. And it feels like there's so much more risk in schools than in any of these other places. Like I can keep a social distance when I'm at the gym, but my six-year-old is definitely not going to do that. Right. No question. Once you start moving indoors, there is a higher risk, which is the rationale um, uh, behind hopefully testing even, even youngsters, whether it's spit testing or nasal swabs, the smaller group cohorts, uh, you certainly can't guarantee that. Fortunately, again, younger people do tend to do well. Um, and it's important to get ventilation. Ideally, in the best of all worlds, we would spend some of the money, the, uh, the millions and billions that are being spent in New York in um, air purifiers and ultraviolet lighting. Oh, it's so pretty uh, to think so, right? 
<laughs> it, it would be pretty to think so. There are some mitigation efforts that can be done, even in older buildings. No one really has done that. So, so it's unfortunately back to the same environment. But some of this may be hybrid learning. We've talked about that with some online stuff. And even a few hours, I think, can be beneficial to kids. They need the social interaction. Uh, teachers are not so happy about this, although they're not happy with remote uh, teaching either. But uh, kids learning at home really have a have a deficit. They need that social interaction. They need that human engagement. Um, and parents can't go back to work unless their kids are in school at least part of the day. So it really is a, um, uh, a Jenga puzzle where, where you really need to get all the pieces together. Doctor, what are, we, what are we learning as we go on day by day, week by week, month by month with this virus um, in terms of you know, how long it may live? Is it mutating? things like that. Give us a sense of kind of where we are in, in the study of that. You know, great, great questions. All of these pandemics, even in 1918, were self-limited. In other words, 1918, there were several waves. We may have another wave. But really, after two or even the third year, it did go away. Either herd immunity develops or you get a vaccine. So this is finite. I, I know it seems like this will never end, but I think we are very close to a vaccine, a good vaccine, uh, uh, a little unlike the Russian vaccine. Our vaccines are now being tested in phase three, some of them, uh, 30,000 people, where you can really begin to see, um, are there side effects? Are there any uh, unexpected problems like Guillain-Barre syndrome or other complications? How effective it is? So I think by January, February, the first vaccines will really be available. And I think that combined with common sense, masks, social distancing will enable us to get back to a more normal uh, existence. But it's still a dangerous virus. This is different than 1918. It's different than flu. This uh, coronavirus variant uh, has mutated. Uh, in general, the virus tends to mutate in a little milder form because uh, if you kill off your host, um, you lose too as the virus. So, so the virus has in some ways uh, mutated. It may mutate again. We try. We worry about too many mutations because obviously you're you're raising a vaccine, and if it mutates too much, that vaccine is no longer effective. Um, but it is a protein virus. In other words, most people do well. Young people do well. But the people who don't do well, it's devastating. We see yeah. strokes. We see heart disease, kidney disease, and long-lasting effects: abnormal liver tests, cognitive effects. Uh, emotional effects, depression, that last month. Uh, the race for the vaccine, that is what all drug companies are aiming for. Earlier on Bloomberg Television, my co-anchor and I, Guy Johnson, we spoke to the CureVac CEO, Franz Werner Hans. Uh, the company IPO'd today. They opened at 44. They priced at 16, so that's a nice pop. And we talked to him about the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. It is a race not that much against the competition of other vaccine producers out there. It's a race against the virus. It's a race against the time. To be fast is really key here. You need to be safe and efficacious with this vaccine. But to be the first one in the market doesn't mean that you are capturing the entire market in order to, because you have to produce it, you have to make a vaccine available. That's one thing. The other thing is really that you need to have a protective vaccine. As it is a new virus, nobody knows really today what kind of level of 
health protection you need to generate by your vaccine in order to be protected on the one side and how long you want to be protected. And therefore, we have been optimizing our, our RNA to come from a low dosage with a long protection. At the end of the day, we will see which vaccine works the best. And this is all depending on data and data which we haven't seen so far. Joining us still is Dr. Ian Lesbader, a clinical professor of medicine at NYU on the phone uh, from New York City. So, doctor, what do you think? Like, how aggressive are we in the race to a vaccine? Yes, this is really uncharted territory. And um, I agree with what was said before. One, the in terms of prevention, the valve masks certainly um, uh, don't really help those around you because if you have it and you're exhaling, you're exposing other people. And I also agree with the, the comments about um, vaccine development. This is uncharted and technology is uncharted. We're doing messenger RNA, for example, Moderna uh, and others are, are using the mRNA technique where They take messenger RNA that, you know, is normally used to synthesize proteins. It's injected, goes into your own cells, and your cells then make this spike protein, which is, we think, characteristic of the coronavirus, and your body forms antibodies, which should hopefully be protective. This, there were various techniques to, um, you know, different kinds of inactivated vaccines and other viral en- enhancements. So we don't really know what is the most effective. Maybe all of them will be effective. And it's good that we have somewhere in the range of 200 companies looking into this, but really only a handful, three, four, five, that are in phase three trials. And that's very important because that's really where you look at uh, tens of thousands of people, some 30,000 people, to see are there specific groups that it works better in or not? Are there side effects? Are there complications? And that's really important before we can reassure people, the population at large, that these are safe and effective. Is it one dose required? Is it two doses? All of that has to be worked out in a very slow and systematic way. But it's good we have a lot of companies because eventually we're talking billions of people on the planet and potentially billions of people who will need uh, protection. Even if you've had COVID, many people lose their antibodies. So even if you've had it, um, unless you're following antibodies, um, basically everyone should get this vaccine. And everyone should also, coming up in the fall, get this flu vaccine uh, because you certainly don't want to get COVID and influenza at the same time. All right. So, doctor, the risk, I guess, with any vaccine is will people take it? And I'm, I'm seeing reports that maybe a third, some surveys have been taken, maybe a third of people won't get the vaccine. What's the risk for the general population there? Good points. Uh, we see that with flu vaccine. We see that with many vaccines, other than, of course, kids where they're mandated to have vaccines before they start school. So when it's voluntary, there are always people who say, you go first, you try it, and, and I'm suspicious. As long as we get the 50 to 70 percent of, of people in this country, at least, um, either vaccinated or with antibodies, we can develop a herd immunity. So. Okay. Not everyone needs it. Personally, I think if you're at a risk group, really over age 50, let's say, or have underlying problems, it would be crazy not to take it because the risk 
of dying from the disease is far greater than taking the vaccine or any complications that we've seen so far. At least early in development now, we have not seen any bad problems. That's why you need phase three studies, though, in larger populations. But I think when those vaccines come along December, January, February, we'll have good data and hopefully people will be reassured about doing it. Dr. Ian Lusbader, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight uh, and your experience in this field. Dr. Ian Lusbader, clinical professor of medicine at NYU. Um, I guess, uh, Alex, you know, kind of thinking about that January, February, March timeframe somewhere in the new year, maybe get starting to get some of these vaccines into the marketplace. Would you take the Russia vaccine? No. No. Would, you, would you take one of the first ones in the U.S. to come to market? I think if it went through reasonable testing, yes. But I'm not an at-risk group, I don't think. Um, but I think you know some of the first responders, I suspect, would be pretty willing uh, to take it because uh, you know some of those, they face some much higher risks. Yeah, no, fair. I mean, you do have some gray, though, so I'm just yeah, saying. Sure. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Thank you for pointing it out. Thank I can't you for see you, but I remember no, lots you. Of, lots of gray hair, you're right. But uh, I think I will, I will certainly be willing once it gets through uh, some of these phase three trials. Yes, it's uh, rushed relative to historicals, but if you get through a phase three and you get the FDA, uh, I'm all in. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Alex, you know, as we've been talking about this afternoon, there are a whole host of companies around the world, really, working on a vaccine for this virus. And there's a fascinating story in the Bloomberg Business Week uh, this week where Moderna wants to transform the body into vaccine-making machine. Let's dig into that story with Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us remotely from Massachusetts. And Bob Langreth, healthcare reporter, Bloomberg News, on the phone from the swamps of Jersey. Joel, welcome to the program here. Talk to us about this interesting story about the folks at Moderna. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, so this is a story, you know, in our vaccine issue this week. And, and I frankly don't think you could have had a vaccine issue and really not had a Moderna <laughs> story. And so this was one that, um, that Bob had been working on for a while. And you, the thing that we really, I think, focused on is, is uh, Moderna's name has been, come up a bunch this year. The stock has been obviously one that everyone's been keen to watch. But really, the underlying technology that they're using for their vaccine is actually a pretty radical approach. And it's not one that's ever been used for any vaccine ever. And we have no idea if it's actually even going to work. But the promise of what they're working on could really upend vaccine development if they can figure out how to do it. And and Bob, I'll I'll kick it over to you there. What are they attempting to do with this mRNA approach to vaccine development? Well, this is like a whole new technology. And as Joel said, you know, it hasn't actually been used in any approved products before. But basically what's happening, instead of the old way where you'd actually for a vaccine, you inject like a whole virus, like an inactivated or killed virus, or part of a virus, like a viral protein. Here, you're just inject- essentially injecting uh, uh, viral genetic material, RNA, uh, and that, that will get ideally get into your cells and use your own cells to kind of become the vaccine-making pa- factory and kind of spew out uh, viral proteins that will then stimulate a protective immune response. And so that's something that's never been done before in an approved product. Uh, but the, if it can be done and it does work, you know, it, it, it has some potential big advantages in terms of speed and ease of production, uh, you know, of new vaccines or all sorts of, you know, other different uh, epidemic strains in the future. So this is kind of like a big test case. These are the first the Moderna vaccine and another similar one uh, from Pfizer and a German company, BioNTech. 
uh, that we wrote about are the first uh, messenger RNA ba- vaccines to go into late-stage trials. So this is really going to give the world, you know, a first look at, you know, what these vaccines are like and how well they work in people. Here's an important question. How do you say Moderna? Because I feel like everyone says it differently. Uh, Charlie Pellet put like an extra R in there. Paul, you put an R in there. It's a Mo. Is it Ma? What, how do you literally say that? I'm, I'm totally being serious. How do you say this company's name? I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I've just been saying what I said. And the company hasn't corrected me. But, you know, I, I am not the expert. You should actually go to the company. That's a good question. Uh, they may have a slightly different preferred uh, pronunciation. I'm going to call on the break. Um, so, okay, my actual other question is how does what Moderna is doing stack up to like what the Oxford vaccine is going to be? Well, sort of both of them are, you know, essentially newer technologies with the messenger RNA being kind of the newest of all. Uh, but they're both relatively new technologies. technologies. The uh, uh, Oxford vaccine uses something called adenovirus. Uh, it's like a different type of virus to kind of carry in uh, 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 RNA for the, uh, it's kind of a vector to carry on RNA for, from the coronavirus. And there's a few different vaccines are using a similar approach. It's called a viral vector approach. Uh, that is uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is using a somewhat similar approach, as are some of them uh, coming from China. But the basic way to think about it is both of these are, you know, relatively new approaches with the adenoviral vector approaches that Oxford is using, you know, have had somewhat uh, more experience and more testing before. So, Bob, given that this is a relatively new technology, this, uh, is it, does that suggest that Moderna's uh, potential vaccine will not be the first to market? It may actually lag some of the other ones out there that might be using more tried and true technology? No. So the, actually, the advantage of messenger RNA and the reason that so many of the early ones at the final stage testing you know, are messenger RNA vaccines is because it doesn't use any living cells or living viruses in the production of the vaccine itself. It just uses RNA, which can kind of can be synthesized in a lab. It's a fairly standardized process. Uh, you know, the front end of the vaccine development uh, is much, much faster. And so I think Moderna was able to get, with working with the National Institutes of Health, was able to get their vaccine, I think, I believe, into clinical trials in you know, just over 60 days from when they started in the project, which is just extraordinarily fast. Uh, uh, so that part, you know, is faster. What's, what's not, what hasn't been done before is no one has produced any of these RNA vaccines at a you know, tremendously large scale before. Uh, so that's kind of, and Moderna's trying to do that with some of its partners, but that's also a total unknown. So, Bob, um, there are other companies other than Moderna who are working on, you know, mRNA and similar approaches. Who are they? And then outside of COVID-19 and, and, you know, the immediate application of the here and now, what other vaccines could this technology be used for? Uh, yeah, so there's a whole bunch of companies are now working on uh, mRNA vaccines. And the, the other, the most obvious uh, competitor that we talk a lot about in the story is uh, BioNTech, uh, which is uh, kind of uh, led by kind of a a husband and wife team that was working on uh, cancer vaccines for many, many years and more recently turned to infection. And they are partnered infectious disease vaccines, and they are partnered with Pfizer. They're also in a final stage trial, and they're kind of neck and neck uh, with Moderna. And, you know, as far as we can tell, we don't know a lot of the details. It appears to be a pretty similar vaccine to Moderna from what we know so far. Uh, and there's some other mRNA companies that are a bit further behind. Uh, there are some groups in England that are working on mRNA. Some, and there's also a German company uh, called CureVac that just did an 
IPO uh, that's also working on an mRNA vaccine. So, you know, this technology is out there, and there's a whole lot of mRNA-based entries. Uh, And what was the other question? Well, uh, forget the question. Let's have the answer, because I just called Moderna. So now I know how to say this company's name, by the way, if everyone's listening. Yep. Moderna. That's right. What's the Moderna? Was I, was, was you're I putting an extra R in there, man. Was I? You're doing maybe something weird. Maybe it's just weird. My, my Jersey accent, maybe. Is it because you're from Jersey? <laughs> I don't know. Let's, we can always blame <laughs> it uh, on that. We appreciate it. Uh, Joel Weber, thanks so much for joining us. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, remotely from Massachusetts. And Bob Langreth, uh, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News on the phone from New Jersey with a fascinating story talking about Moderna. Uh, wants to transform the body into a vaccine-making machine here. So lots of progress being made, uh, Alex, on a lot of different fronts by a lot of different companies and you just hope some of these smart people can you know kind of get this thing over the finish line sooner rather than later yeah i just still worry about the whole cost implication because for smaller companies like uh Kirovac or moderna i mean they, they they need to have a profit at some point right they need to have money in order to go and make more stuff but if you need to do that then how do you get the vaccines to the emerging markets and developing nations i just i yeah, I think the distribution is going to get kind of ugly. I think, and I think that has to be figured out way beforehand. Hopefully, some smart people are, are thinking about it now because you're right. Uh, there are haves and have-nots in this world, as we know, and we got to make sure that this gets out on an equitable basis here. So, certainly, we will follow up on that. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Paul Sweeney and Alex Steele sitting in for Carol and Jason today. Uh, we're going to take a look at some economic data. We had a pretty busy week, as it seems like most weeks are busy. We had the retail sales uh, yesterday. I'm sorry, retail sales today, jobs claims yesterday. Let's dig into some of those numbers and maybe look ahead a little bit. Yelena Shulietova, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, uh, she joins us. So, Yelena, let's talk. Let's start with those retail sales today. Um, Still growing, but they slowed pretty significantly in July. As you think about your outlook, your models, how concerned are you about that? I'm concerned about uh, what happens in August, actually, because okay. uh, this is a back-to-school month, and uh, what happens uh, in August could tell us a little bit about what happens in November, December during the holiday season. So are mm. consumers concerned about their incomes? Are they ready to spend? So I think August will be a big test for uh, uh, you know, consumers and in terms of retail sales. Yes, you know, the pace of retail sales is slowing, but that's natural because it was a large rebound right in the beginning mm-hmm. of the recovery and it slows down. So that's not a big concern. The big concern to me is what happens next, what happens in August, what happens towards the end of the year. Which is such a good point. I think you, you make a distinction between a rebound and recovery. Like we're obviously going to have a rebound from where we were, but a recovery looks very different. And so I'm wondering how much of the government stimulus or lack thereof will play into that. Because on the flip side, some people have been saving a lot of the money, so the savings rates are higher, right? But they, it's surged. Well, it's right. surged. But will anyone actually spend any money? <laughs> well, uh, it will depend on how uncertain things are. And right now, the cloud of uncertainty surrounding the outlook, and I'm speaking like the Fed uh, policymakers' language, and uh, it, it's uh, definitely not uh, being helped by the delay in stimulus package. Uh, the executive orders were fine. You know, it's better than nothing, mm-hmm. but uh, obviously a bipartisan deal on a stimulus, that would uh, be much more needed uh, going forward. And we're probably not going to hear anything until September 8th. 
Elena, you know, this is also a presidential election year, and it's kind of getting pushed to the back burner relative to the pandemic here. But I know historically, you know, that's something that economists really focus on, market strategists really focus on because of the impact, obviously, on the macro economy uh, from different administrations. How are you guys thinking about uh, a potential for uh, not only a Biden administration, but maybe even a Democratic uh, Senate as well? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. So the election uh, season is uh, uh, getting into a higher gear right now with the convention starting uh, on Monday. And uh, the way we think about it is obviously the president presidential election will get a lot of attention, but what will probably matter more for the markets and uh, for the economy is what happens at the congressional level. So if we get a unified uh, you know, presidential uh, ticket and uh, Congress, we will probably see a little bit easier, uh, 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 you know, uh, stimulus uh, spending and um, things that could help economy. So the concern here is uh, a divided Congress again that could uh, stall uh, any further progress. I think what's important to remember, it's uh, the year that uh, we'll see the economy coming out of a recession and we will see you know, expansionary policy one way or another. It will depend on whether it's taxes, lower taxes, or whether it's uh, uh, bigger spending. Paul, have you been shopping? Um, not a big shopper, but I have noticed the you know the credit card bills are lower. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> Elena, how about you? Well, I've been shopping, but uh, not uh, for back to school. My toddler is still too small, and <laughs> perhaps he's not going to daycare either. Yeah, no, I definitely have not been shopping back to school. Um, the other uh, data point that I thought was interesting we got out was Humish. I know it's Janet Yellen's sort of desert indicator. Like, if you were in a desert <laughs> island, like, what would you like to have with you? Um. What I found interesting was the rise in inflation expectations. How did you interpret that? I mean, it's just probably uh, gasoline prices of some sort and maybe mm. a rebound from the previous uh, months. I think I, I don't believe in uh, That's not hyperinflation your story <laughs> or uh, inflation really becoming a concern anytime soon. We might see, you know, some spikes in the data here and there. The data are volatile and they're still rebounding from the previous uh, declines. But I think uh, the lack of aggregate demand will just weigh on inflation and uh, it's not going to become a concern anytime soon. So, Leanne, uh, where is the Bloomberg economics team uh, GDP uh, fa- outlook right now? So uh, we expect a, a sharp rebound, obviously, in the third quarter. But for the year as a whole, uh, we expect a 6.4% decline, which is a very significant decline in terms yeah. of uh, like uh, compared to any point in history, in modern history in particular. Um, what Since we don't really have clarity on what all the data means as we get it, what do you look for? Like, what's the th- what's your desert island indicator right now? Well, I I would say, I mean, we Just have to uh, not even jobless uh, claims. Claims will probably decline a little bit just simply because, you know, people are disincentivized uh, from uh, applying for jobless benefits because they're not getting augmented benefits, mm. at least until the uh, executive orders uh, kick in. I, I would look at payrolls. I think payrolls is really important. It, it's always an important indicator, but uh, it becomes even more important. And I'm also watching uh, flows uh, uh, from 
the labor force and out of the labor market. Mm. So a lot of people get discouraged. A lot of people will have to face a dilemma with back to school, whether they need to stay with their kids because the schools, some schools are not open for um, instruction at school. Mm -hmm. But what happens there? A lot of people are, um, you know, facing uh, some tough choices. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, f certainly we will follow up on that labor data. We get, again, we get the high-frequency data uh, once a week on Thursdays, and we always pay attention to that. Elena Shulatyeva, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, thank you so much uh, for that. And it's uh, interesting, uh, uh, Alex, it'll be interesting to see when Congress does come back, what urgency did they feel about getting a stimulus package? You know, we're getting some you – could, you could take the glass half full and say, hey, the economy is coming back on its own. Maybe we don't need it. Well, that's kind of what I was worried about when we got the claims this week. I was like, oh, is this one of those better data's bad data? Because now there's going to be less, you know, fire to go and pass something. So I wonder if we're going to be in that kind of limbo. If something's yep. good, it's actually bad. Yeah, but you listen to some of the governors and they say, we need help right away. So we'll see how that plays out. Boy, take a look at the airlines. Uh, Alex, they were absolutely one of the first industries to feel, you know, the brunt of the economic impact of this coronavirus, just down 90 percent in terms of passengers flying. And it's just opening up ever, ever, ever so slightly. To get an update, we welcome Helene Becker, Managing Director and Senior Research Analyst. She's at the Cowan Research Group. She's been covering this, uh, this sector for ages, has great perspective. Helene, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a sense of kind of where we are right now in the nascent recovery for the airline business. Um, thanks again for having me. Yeah, so we're, we're better than we thought we, I'd, we're better than <laughs> where I thought we'd be at this point in the recovery. I thought we'd be seeing around four or 500,000 passengers a day, and, and we're regularly seeing about 700,000. Um, and now what's two normal? Sundays in Two and a half million. Oh boy! Okay. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's perspective. <laughs> yeah. perspective. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not in the league. And the way to think about that two and a half million, it's about a million domestic passengers a day, um, and then about another, say, half a million to to three quarters of a million, maybe five to seven hundred thousand um, international passengers, and another five to six seven hundred thousand business. Um, if you wanted to separate it out. Otherwise, it's about 60% total domestic and 70% and domestic and 30% international. So when you think about, you know, corporate travel being less than 5% right now, and you think about, um, you know, international being virtually shut down still, um, you see where you're not going to be able to get back to 2.5 million for a while. I think we'll be stuck in this area until... Um, either quarantine rules are lifted or there are things to do or cases start to plateau and fall. And then I think people will feel more comfortable about traveling. Um, I expect by the end of the year we'll be at about a million. So that's, you know, kind of where we're looking at, a million passengers a day um, for the holidays as people visit friends and relatives and maybe, you know, try to do some Caribbean travel or Mexico um, or maybe some Florida or California if the cases down there start to stabilize. Um, I think that the real, you know, issue is at some point we went from flattening the curve to waiting for a cure. Hmm. And, you know, it seems like we're still stuck in, in that, you know, area. And I know this is a horrible disease, and I don't mean to, 
you know, poo-poo it. But on the other hand, I also feel like we need to get back to life and we need to figure well, it's... Oh, go ahead. Well, as I say, but, but to that point, get back to life. And I don't necessarily disagree with that at all. I'm just wondering how we respond to that new life in that I take a look at Europe, which was thought to be handling everything much better. And all of a sudden you get these 14 day quarantines from the UK, from different countries with like a day notice to uh, implement. You have regional lockdowns again, coming into the fray here in the U S I feel like every other day Cuomo is adding or taking off another state to the New York's 14 day quarantine. Um, if that's the new normal, like psychologically, how do you go anywhere? <laughs> You can't. I mean, I think that's. I think you make an amazingly great point. You can't. Amazingly great. I'm going to drop the mic now. I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I. You know, I say similar things, only not as eloquently. Um, (laughs) I, I just find it. You know, amazing that that these governors and and um, people in charge think that it's okay to implement these changes on a moment's notice. Because to your exact point, how do you make plans? Um, you really can't. And I think that's what's got people more spooked than the idea of wearing a mask or you know, trying to socially distance. I mean, there's no such thing as being socially distant on board an aircraft. Um, you know, yeah. it's just like that's not right. that's not happening. But it's safe that the air moves vertically, and you wear your mask and you move along. Um, and I think that's fine. But I, I think Alex had a really good point. Like, how do you travel when yeah. you never know what the rules are going to be, and you can't take you know a week off if you have to quarantine somewhere for two weeks before you get there. It and it, it just speaks to the fact that we're not going to get you know, normal um, travel for a long time. And, you know, I think, you know, we're forecasting three to five years before we get back to 2019 levels. Okay. Um, Yeah. And, you know, the um, CARES Act funding runs out on September 30th. And without further stimulus to March of 2021, which is what a lot of the unions have asked for, um, we're going to see quite a lot of furloughs and we're going to see a very, you know, a much smaller industry. Um, people who were used to having, you know, service in their markets, especially in smaller towns, are going to find they, they have none um, because, you know, the airlines just can't. This is not an altruistic business. The airlines have to make money or they're going to just. All right. Fail. So to that end, Helene, 30 seconds. Do we have any airlines that are going to go out of business? Um, not in 2021. I mean, okay. 2020, maybe in 2021. And that's just simply a cash burn situation, right? Yeah, it's like yep. if you can't, if you can't, to, to the earlier point, if you can't make a reservation knowing that when your day comes to travel, you can go, yep. you, you're not going to do it. And if you're not going to do it, then um, that's really harmful to the airlines. Yep. Helene Becker, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We always appreciate uh, the benefit of your experience and your uh, analysis of the space. Managing Director, Senior Research Analyst uh, from Cowan Research Group. And, you know, just looking at the stocks, out down, you know, 50, 60 percent here. And as Helene was saying, and you said as as well, it's tough to see demand come back prior to a vaccine. Yeah. Have you been on a plane yet? I have not. I have not. If I had to, I would. But I'm not going to until things get better. Or there's a vaccine, but uh, I just don't, the risk reward just isn't there for me. So if I had to travel, I certainly would, and I would feel okay about it. But if I don't have to travel, uh, I am not going to get well on said. a plane. Well yeah, said. so we'll have to play it by ear. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. 
I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, there are a lot of variables for equity investors and risk investors in general to take, really have to take into the calculus. You've got the, obviously the pandemic, the impact from the pandemic on the economy. We've now got politics to factor into the equation with the election coming up. A lot to deal with. Let's see how the pros are doing it. For that, we welcome Scott Kuby. He's a senior investment strategist at the Carson Group. They is calling on the phone from Omaha, Nebraska, where they may still play college football this fall. We'll have to see. Scott, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's talk about maybe the economic backdrop that you're envisioning as you think about, you know, the, the strategy you'd want to employ investing capital here. Yeah, and thanks just all right off the bat for mentioning the state religion, which is our college football team here. That's how important it is. And so, uh, yeah, you got me a little emotional right off on the first question there. So uh, economic backdrop we're seeing is really what we had anticipated, a fairly sharp recovery initially as the restrictions for people being able to pursue commerce in the way that they want to do were at least partially restricted. Things shot up. Uh, businesses were open. That uh, Probably a couple of them were restrictions were a little bit tight and that they allowed some people to get back to work. And then with the surge in viruses, heavily, more heavily in the southern states, but really all over the U.S. where it's continued to clip along at a fairly strong rate, that has slowed down that pace of reopening. That has slowed down the ability of those businesses to rehire. And therefore, you're getting some pretty weak retail sales. As people aren't going out as often um, as they might have if the virus had stayed under better control, um, but also not as many businesses feel like it's worthwhile as well. So the impediments to commerce are still there. And we're expecting a pretty slow climb up until we see some degree of vaccine or at least a much better overall therapeutic in order to support economic growth where people feel like they can get diagnosed very quickly and healed very quickly, then maybe the threat isn't as great. Otherwise, yeah, we're expecting a pretty slow uh, climb out through here until we hit that period of time where a vaccine might be able to have effect. And I, and I think some of the hard part is, is even if we get one, how effective will it be and will it be enough in order to get rid of cases? Or is there going to be that constant slow burn of risk out there that you may run into and that, that's going to cause people to be very hesitant? And that could mean that we're going to a slower economic grind for really a fairly long period of time. And that'll be challenging, I think, for the markets and for investors overall. So, Scott, does that mean that you feel like the best case is priced into markets or that if something actually goes well, <laughs> that's not priced in? Yeah, so I, I think it's a it's a good example. One of my uh, my favorite authors is J.R. Tolkien, and one of the things. He oh my likes gosh, to have me is, too. Ditto. Yeah. Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit? Decide. Yeah. Yes, uh, I'm a, probably Lord of the Rings. Yes, a little bit more than The Hobbit. Okay, so I, I'm glad we had this. Yeah, this is. Uh, <laughs> and so one of the the things that he used to he had is in his writing was a what they call he called a U catastrophe, and U was Greek for good. And so it was something where everything was going terrible, and all of a sudden in comes eagles flying somebody out or all sorts of different things that would happen within the books. And I think that that's there always there's a very 
there's a decent possibility of a U catastrophe here, where we end up with a vaccine a little bit sooner, but way more effective than the market's pricing in. And then all bets are off at that point as far as that the market could really rally. So I don't think we're priced. I, I like to say we're pricing in. I, I say the market and investors are looking at with what I call rose-colored binoculars. When you look at binoculars, you're looking farther into the future. You're not paying as much attention to what's going on around you right now. And you're looking through rose-colored lenses, which is the degree of bit, uh, a bit of optimism. So I say it's optimistic, but there is always a chance it could turn out way better, in which case stocks would likely rally. And I think especially value stocks, uh, because those are the ones that when you see things get better as far as the potential opportunities for a vaccine, those are the stocks that are getting hit the worst from a COVID world. And so if, that, if the odds of that slowing down or disappearing become greater, then I think we see a lot better opportunity within that space. Otherwise, I think you continue to see pretty positive trends within growth stocks, although they're pricing in some pretty optimistic assumptions about where we're going to end up. So not all the way there, but certainly more optimism than we would expect otherwise. So, Scott, we do have uh, some elections coming up here. Historically, how worried or how do you play that? Do you ignore it? What's your play there as we go into not just a presidential election, but what could be a very significant one for the Senate as well? Do you know the, the highest risk thing I say when I go out and speak to Carson Group clients is try to keep your politics out of your portfolio <laughs> um, because it may be your portfolio is your politics may not be in line with what's best for your portfolio. And that's OK, because money isn't everything from that perspective. It isn't even close. Um, but I also want to dose that with some additional reality, which is, uh, you know, during the Obama presidency, S&P 500 went up 12.31 percent per year. Um, since we've had this really great rally out of the out of the lows in March, uh, for the Trump presidency, the stock market is up 15.13 percent uh, per year, and this is from when they were elected. So the day after the election is when you start doing the calculation. Now those are both well above historical averages, and obviously with the Obama presidency going eight years, that's a great period of time. But if you're pretty politically charged, either to the left or the right. One of those two people is not anywhere close to your favorite president of all time. And yet your portfolio probably did really well during that. And now what that tells us is, is that politics aren't everything. And it's more about business fundamentals, opportunities, growth. And I, so I think that's the first message I would send is just to don't equate your political situation. Now, you may have a really deep feelings one way or the other about immigration, but that probably is not going to be an issue that affects your portfolio over the next one, two, or three years in a particularly great way. It may be extremely important. It's just not financially as important as some of the other issues. The second piece I would run on that is I'm not sure this is election is as major. It certainly is not as major as it could have been. What if, you know, if Senator Sanders had been nominated? Then this would be a crucial election economically about the overall long-term direction of the United States, its relation to capitalism. I think if Senator Warren had been nominated, that would be equally fair as well or, or almost as fair. But, but in, in his, they weren't. In the end, they the the former sitting vice president who was the you know in the vice president is running against an incumbent president. We're not blazing new ground here. We're not talking on the fringes of either party or being nominated. These are the people that are very much solidly in in the center of their overall party to a great degree. Biden even more than Trump. And because of that, I just don't see where the delta on this as far as which candidate wins is as large as it might normally be. And certainly, if Sanders had been nominated. All right, Scott. 
Really good to catch up with you. You brought in Lord of the Rings, so now you're my favorite. Scott Kuby, Senior <laughs> Investment Strategist at the Carson Group. But the point is that, you know, Frodo spends like 10 hours of movie getting <laughs> g- going to uh, the mountain to destroy the ring, right? And at right. last minute, the eagles come and take him away. Well, why <laughs> couldn't the eagles just like take him from Hobbiton and just transport them to the mountain? Like what's with the, all this time in between? Boy, you're asking some deep questions there. Deep questions. You've never seen it or read it, I've have never you? seen it or read it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.